This episode could be triggering for sensitive listeners and contains mature content. It may not be suitable to all listeners. Should you need any emotional assistance, please see the show notes for telephone numbers that you can call. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the podcast. Any content provided by contributors such as the host, guests, bloggers, sponsors or authors are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, group, club, organization, company, individual or anyone or anything. Before we get into today's episode, I just want to thank each and every one of my listeners. We have reached 1,500 downloads and there are not enough words to say thank you. It is being said Kwasi Zabantu has got two legs on which they stand. One is confession. Confession. Oh, I'm fully, fully behind it. If King David and all through the Bible If they had sinned, they cried to God. God, I'm sorry. I've sinned. And not this nonsense having to go to a human being who doesn't forget, who holds it against you for the rest of your life. We're young girls. went to for forgiveness and it was held against them I don't know This is Decoding Cults and I'm your host Palsy You are listening to the Kwasi Sabantu Mission Part 3 In this episode we are going to delve into some more of the beliefs and practices within the mission and some of the shocking allegations that have come to light All of the information that I've used for this episode come from news sources, mostly News24. I also used the KSB Alert website, which has articles and first-hand accounts of people who were at or associated with the mission. I also used the KSB website. The book Mission of Malice, My Exodus from Kwasi Sabantu by Erika Bornman and the book Is This a Genuine Revival? A Missiological Investigation About the Revival Among the Zulus by Albert Pylon. According to Dictionary.com, confession is 1. Acknowledgement, avowal, admission. 2. Acknowledgement or disclosure of sin or sinfulness especially to a priest to obtain absolution. 3. Something that is confessed. 4. A formal, usually written, acknowledgement of guilt by a person accused of a crime. 5. 
also called confession of faith, a formal profession of belief and acceptance of doctrines, as before being admitted to church membership. 6. The tome of a martyr or confessor of the altar or shrine connected with it. When I think of confession from a religious aspect, I think of a member of the Catholic Church stepping into a cubicle and starting with, Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. Then you confess your sins and you get absolved. I spoke to two friends of mine who practice Catholicism and I asked them about the practice. Catholics are encouraged to confess their sins in order to cleanse their souls, unburden themselves and gain absolution. Very devout Catholics confess as often as once a week. Some only confess before big festivities like Christmas and Easter. Although it is very much encouraged, you do not get punished or expelled if you don't go. Furthermore, confession remains between the confessor, the priest and God. In his book, Is This a Genuine Revival? Albert Pylon writes, Stegen's slogan is, God sees every sin that is unconfessed. Believers therefore need to repent of sin. Erlo's message is always that of revival, but part of that is confession, because as he stated in one of his sermons called Why Does Revival Come to an End? Hiding sin kills revival. Everyone at the mission, including the children, whether they live at the mission or board at the school, need to confess their sins. If you went to sleep with even one unconfessed sin, you would go straight to hell. But how does one confess one's sins at the mission? I'm glad you asked. Each member of the congregation needs to seek out a counsellor. Not a professional counsellor or a priest, but a person who has been deemed spiritual enough by their standards to hear confessions. Confession needs to take place at least once a week. Children who attended the school would get notes signed by the counsellors to prove that they had been there. And adults? Well, they tend to come to the conclusion to confess their sins all by themselves. On their website, there are statements from congregants like, quote, Nobody forced me to confess my sin. Nobody told me to do it. But I knew it was the only way I would ever get victory over sin. Another statement says in part, quote, I learned the lesson of the importance of confession of sin and what precious treasures God could impact through this. No one forced me into this. Okay, I know I've said this before, but in my opinion, these kind of epiphanies are very often subtly coerced through the indoctrination of the leader. And, in the case of KSB, I think there may have been many sermons around this, which would have led people to their conclusions. As for the statements, why would they find the need to justify their deciding to confess and emphasize that they came to the conclusion by themselves? It just feels like they're trying too hard to prove free will here. In her book, Mission of Malice, Erica Borman describes how a counseling session would work as follows. This person listens to you, questions you, and then, when you have no more to say, they pray with you that God will forgive your sin. They say that the reason why you need to confess in the presence of another person was to prevent you from doing the same sin again. 
I have also been in contact with another ex-member, who I'm going to call Mike. This is not his real name, but I'd like to protect his identity. Mike's family were part of an overseas branch of KSB by the time he was born. I asked him about the rules around confession at their branch, and he told me that it was not as regimented as it was at the KSB KZN branch, but it was central to their doctrine. He went on to explain that the pastor would preach how confession was the one true mark of Christianity, so they did not exactly force confession, but they did use theology to achieve the same results. He relayed to me that the majority of the young adults believed that in order to be a true Christian, they needed to regularly confess their sins to the pastor. He used his own experience as an example, stating, quote, At the age of 14, I felt that the only way to avoid hell and God's judgment was to write up a list of every sin I could think of throughout my life and confess it to the pastor. He also went on to say, quote, I remember agonizing about knowing how I could be sure I had confessed all of my sins to the pastor. Mike also told me of a young lady, who I'm going to call Mary, this is not her real name. Mary was also a member of the branch where he was. He explained that at times there were even public confessions in front of the entire church. One day, during a church service, Mary, who was a teenager at the time, had developed such severe anxiety that she got up in front of the whole congregation that day and confessed to hypocrisy because, among other things, she felt her facial expressions were sinful. Unlike confession to a Catholic priest, these are not sacred. In fact, there are numerous allegations where something told to the counsellor in confidence was then in turn told to the leader and... Depending on the sin, you would be punished accordingly. One ex-follower was excommunicated for watching the movie Pearl Harbor on DVD and someone else had confessed her sin before she could. Mike recalled a time where their pastor had publicly revealed a sin that had been confessed to him privately. Confession, however, was not limited to your own sin. In his statement to the CRL Commission, Former member Peter Becker stated, quote, You won't even speak to your friend if something is troubling you, because your friend might go and confess, and if he confesses first, you're in big trouble. In my opinion, this must have led to such a lonely life, when you can't even confide in a friend or a loved one for fear of being snitched on. I can't even imagine going through life not being able to trust anyone around me. Using Dr. Hassan's bite model, this correlates with point 7 under emotional control, where they control a follower, or in this case congregant, by ritualistic and sometimes public confessions of sin. And point 4 under information control, where spying is encouraged on other members, having people confess their perceived sins and also basically snitching on each other, helps the leader of the group keep stronger control over his followers and also ensures that they are too scared to do something wrong within the rules of the group. There were, however, some counsellors who took their power over their charges even further. I'm going to insert a trigger warning here as there will be reference to sexual abuse, grooming and rape. 
but I'm first going to give a brief summary of some of the points in the Criminal Law, Sexual Offences and Related Matters Amendment Act 32 of 2007, or SOAA for short. According to gov.za, the SOAA protects any person who has experienced any of the following. Rape occurs when a person forces another to have sexual intercourse without their consent. This is a crime and must be reported. The SOAA also makes it a crime for a person to force another person to rape someone. This is known as compelled rape. Sexual assault occurs when a person sexually violates another person without their consent. This is a crime and must be reported. The SOAA also makes it a crime for a person to force another person to witness or perform sexual acts to someone. This is known as compelled sexual assault. Sexual grooming occurs when a person educates, introduces, or prepares a child or a person living with mental disability to perform or witness any sexual act or become sexually ready. Children are usually unaware that the person is grooming them for sexual acts because this person is often nice to the child. In most instances, after realizing the motive of the person, the child is scared to report this because the incident could have been taking place over a long period of time. This is a crime and must be reported. In her book, Erica Borman describes how her counsellor very gradually groomed her. At first he would give her fatherly hugs. This had meant a lot to her as she had tragically lost her father the year before. And if you can recall from our previous episode, there is no contact allowed between any male and female member of the group. So this was kept secret between the two. It later evolved to kisses, first closed mouth, but then later he would put his tongue in her mouth. The intimate kissing created mixed feelings within her. She was only 17 at this point, and with no real guidance from anyone, including her mother, all that she could come up with was that what she was feeling must have been the evilest sin a woman can commit. Lust. Not only that, but she was feeling it towards this man who she saw as a mentor. Having been taught that feelings towards a man was wrong, and not having been taught that he should never touch you in any way, this poor young girl must have been in turmoil. He was a man of God, so she decided that she must be in the wrong. She decided to talk to her counsellor about this, but instead of stopping his actions, he made an appointment with Erlo for the two of them. At the meeting, her counsellor, Muzi Kuneni, made her tell Erlo what she had told him. Erlo, instead of reprimanding Muzi, turned to Erika, calling her a slut, a whore, a Delilah, and a marriage wrecker. She was forbidden to speak to him again. As a matter of fact, she was forbidden from telling anyone about it. In a statement, Kurs Grief, a former employee who had left the mission in 1993, stated, quote, As head of security at KSB for many years, many matters were reported to me. As such, I was made aware of the sexual deviancy of Muzi Kuneni in early 1982 already, and I reported this to Erlo Stegen personally. 
I went back to him so many times about Muzi Kunene that eventually Erlo would get angry the moment I mentioned Muzi's name to him. Thus stands to reason, well at least to me, that Erlo was aware of what Muzi was doing to some of the female members at the mission and still chose to blame the women and girls and not report him to the authorities. And even worse, he basically allowed him to continue doing it. But the abuse was not limited to the counsellors. Another female member, whose identity was withheld, stated at a CRL commission hearing into KSB that she had been raped but kept it quiet for years, and when she finally spoke out, she said in her statement, quote, Confession was done all the time, and we were made to believe that the more you confess, the better you are. My counsellor had told me that now that I had brought my rape incident to him, God had forgiven me. She went on to say, quote, We were made to believe that we were the sinners. I left the mission and realised that this was not true. Another victim came forward to News 24. In the article, they referred to her as Nalda in order to protect her identity, so I will use the same name. Nalda recounts a time when she was five years old, where she was playing by herself on a hot summer's day at the mission. A man whose house was nearby where she was playing approached her and offered her a cool drink. She accepted and went to his house, where Nalda, the man, and his wife drank their refreshments. The man then asked this little girl if she wanted to go for a walk, which, in her innocence, she agreed to. They walked over to a part of the mission where old cars and scrap was kept and sat down in the grass. Just a warning, this next part will be hard to listen to. In her own words to News 24, she said, quote, What I remember clearly is that he stuck his tongue in my ear and pressed my face flat into the ground on the grass. I thought I was dying. The rest I can't give details about. What I remember is that after that, my panty was swelled. On her way home, she threw her panties in a bin and didn't breathe a word about what had happened to her. Even at that young age, she knew that girls were blamed for similar things happening to them when they spoke up. Many years later, Nalda's family had left the mission and completely broke ties with them, after a falling out with the leadership, this was an unrelated matter to this recount. At the age of 17, she finally told her parents what had happened to her. Her father reported the matter to the mission. In the article, she explained what happened when her abuser was confronted. Quote, he was tearful. He said he could not believe that I recalled what happened as I had been so little. Nothing happened to him. Life continued as normal. That's the thing with Kwasi Sabantu. If you're a man and you cry hard enough, you're excused for just about anything. She found out later that this very man who the church had forgiven was a known sex offender. The complete misogynistic views of the leaders baffles me. The fact that a man can get away with these allegations while the female victim is blamed, it just doesn't sit well with me but this is just my opinion. When I look at Dr. Hassan's bite model, two things correlate with this under emotional control. Point three states, 
make the person feel that the problems are always their own fault, never the leader or the group's fault. And point four, promote feelings of guilt or unworthiness, which has a list of examples below it. The next practice that I would like to cover is fire service. Act chapter 19 verse 19 states, Many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burnt them in public. They added up the price of the books, and the total came to 50,000 silver coins. At the mission, they would hold what they referred to as fire services. I could not pinpoint the exact date that this practice began, but I've got it on good authority that it was practiced every so often at the mission. If you recall from our first episode, we discussed how there were some Gormas who were converted to Christianity. Well, they needed to get rid of all of the symbols and property that linked them to their life before they converted. A big bonfire was made, and they would throw all of those non-Christian things into the fire to be rid of them. In one YouTube video called Revival Fire, which you can access on the KSB website through their YouTube channel, Erla describes how they would allow people to burn stolen goods that the new converts had acquired and had not, or in his words, could not return to their owners. As a matter of fact, he said in the interview with the Dutch Christian TV company, quote, Then there are other things as well, things that have been stolen. When they make restitution, they go back to the persons from whom they have stolen these things and ask for forgiveness, returning those things. But then, there are things that they have bought from people, and they don't know who they are. Those people have stolen it. And so they have brought them from those people. Maybe they saw them for the first and the last time. Now they don't know where to take it. So they bring it and it is burnt publicly. End quote. In a 2014 article on gatewaynews.co.za, it described an Easter weekend fire service as follows quote, Fetishes, amulets, occult paraphernalia, drums used by witch doctors and for customary purposes, a range of stolen household and other goods, weapons, drugs, occult books, pornographic material and items bought cheaply from thieves or through the proceeds of prostitution, all went up in flames. Since the beginning of a revival amongst the Zulu people in KwaZulu-Natal in the 1960s, many people have come under great conviction of sins and found no peace until they brought to light their hidden works of darkness. As a result, over the years, many have brought their accursed articles to be burnt at Kwasi Sabantu Mission fire services in order to find freedom in Christ. End quote. It was not only these things that were burnt in the fire. Congregants would bring all of the items that they were taught was keeping them from salvation. So they also burned television sets, books that were not approved by the mission, clothing, and even makeup. The reason I brought this specific practice up is because it reminds me of one of the information control points on Dr. Stephen Hassan's bike model, where they minimize or discourage access to non-cult resources of information, including internet, TV, radio, books, articles, newspapers, magazines, and media. I reached out to Mike, again not his real name, 
to find out if they had any fire services in any of the overseas branches that he had been a part of. He stated that to his knowledge, these were only limited to here in South Africa. Now, I am not a legal professional, but something told me that burning these stolen goods couldn't have been legal. I asked around and did some research and I found the following. Firstly, in Section 37 of the General Law Amendment Act of 1955, it states, 1. Any person who in any manner otherwise than at a public sale acquires or receives into his possession from any other person stolen goods other than stock or produce that is defined in Section 13 of the Stock Theft Act of 1923, without having reasonable cause, proof of which shall be on such first-mentioned person, for believing at the time of such acquisition or receipt that such goods are the property of the person from whom he receives them, or that such person has been duly authorized by the owner thereof to deal with or dispose of them, shall be guilty of an offence and liable on conviction to the penalties which may be imposed on a conviction of receiving stolen property, knowing it to have been stolen. End quote. I also found a letter published by the South African Police Services, or SAPS. On their website, saps.gov.za, in 2019, which urges the public to reject and report any goods that you suspect have been stolen and immediately report it to SAPS. Another possibility that a colleague of mine pointed out was defending or obstructing the course of justice, which, in this case, would be burning the evidence of a crime. Another thing that I want to touch on is language. Amanda Montal, who has a degree in linguistics, recently wrote a book called Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism. In this book, she writes among other things about the nuances used when ordinary words are given new meaning within a group. This method in a way unifies the group and makes the people within the group feel special, like they know something that others don't. On the flip side, this type of language is also used to exert control over people. Dr. Yanya Lalich is an American sociologist and author of multiple books on these kinds of groups and also warns about language. On her website, coldsearch.org, they explain the concept of loading the language where it states, quote, There is jargon internal to and understood by only the group. Constricting language constricts the person. Capacities for thinking and feeling are significantly reduced. Imagination is no longer part of the person's actual life experiences. The mind atrophies from disuse. Even in Dr. Hassan's bite model under thought control, point three states, use of loaded language and cliches which constrict knowledge, stop critical thoughts and reduce complexities to platitudinous buzzwords. The reason why I'm bringing this up is that while having a chat with Mike, he pointed out some of the KSB-specific terminology to me. I also spoke to another ex-member, who I'm going to call JJ, as I would also like to protect her identity. Together they gave me some of the jargon, and I'm going to share these with you, including the KSB meaning. Let's start with co-worker. 
To me, a coworker is someone that you work with, like a colleague at work. At KSB, these were members of the higher echelons of the mission, the leaders and more within Erlo's inner circle. I know that we covered the next two earlier in the episode, but I want to lay them out here again within the context of this particular topic. At KSB, a counsellor is a person who is usually a co-worker or leader at the group. Confession is when you go to your counsellor and confess all of your sins to this person. These two went hand in hand with a phrase they used called walking in the light. You see, walking in the light within the group means that you need to constantly confess your sins to your counsellor. They even had a term for snitching. You see, you weren't divulging their secrets or ratting them out, you were helping them. There was also staying pure, which basically meant that not only would you be sexually abstinent before marriage, but you would have zero contact with any man or woman, including your fiancé, before you are married. Then we have the revival. If you recall the first part of the series into this group, I spoke about what Ulla referred to as the Zulu revival. Well, the revival became and still is a central part of their belief system. This is used to make them feel as if they have the actual answer to salvation. JJ told me that Ulla used to tell the congregation, other Christians have the Bible, we have the Bible and the revival. In conjunction with this was the phrase, the true way. Now, I must admit, when I first heard this, the first thing that popped into my head was the term, my way or the highway, followed shortly by the ACDC song, Highway to Hell. Little did I know how true these two things would become, but more about that later. At KSB, the true way boils down to the fact that they are basically the one and only way to get to heaven. Yes, you are thinking correctly. This also forms part of the cult-like ideal where they put themselves forward as the only way to reach your salvation. The last piece of KSB terminology that I want to cover is the word amasu. In South African vernacular, this word means strategic or tactical. I double-checked this with a Zulu friend of mine. However, at the mission, everyone associates this word with white lies. They allegedly believe that this term means that if you happen to tell a lie that protects the church or God's work, then that lie is okay. I dare say, one might refer to it as a strategic lie, but that's just my opinion. And I need to add a disclaimer here that the mission says that they do not use this term. The final thing that I would like to discuss in this episode is the mission's stance on social media. I have it on good authority that with the growth in popularity of Facebook, Ulla would preach to his congregation that, if your name is on Facebook, it is not in the book of life. Now, I want to unpack the statement in two parts. Firstly, I want to look at information control. By this time, you should be aware that in my opinion, limiting people's access to outside information is part of this group's doctrine. We see this in the censorship and the fact that they don't allow any forms of media like television and radio, 
well, besides their own radio station. Now, people having access to social media means that they will have access to outside information, whether it be news or, if you will, fake news, or any other forms of information that is outside of the teachings of the group, and they may even lead a follower to apply critical thinking into what they are taught, or in some cases expose the group to information that puts the mission in a bad light. As we learned earlier in the episode, people profess to come to their conclusions on things like having to confess sin all by themselves. So in my mind, it stands to reason that they would not outrightly be told not to go onto Facebook, but would rather be preached to on how sinful and damning Facebook is. The other thing I wanted to unpack is the fact that the mission does in fact have a social media presence. They have a YouTube channel, a Facebook page, an Instagram page, and a Twitter account. If their stance on social media is that it is evil, then why would they have a social media presence? I guess in this day and age, it would be strange not to have social media presence to get your message out there. I would just like to say a very special thank you to Mike and JJ. They have been incredible not only as sources of information, but also in having great patience with my endless questions around their experiences and on providing me with clarification around some of the practices. I am also extremely grateful that they so kindly shared their stories with me. Furthermore, I need to add the disclaimer in here that Kwasi Sabantu Mission denies the allegations put forward to them, and a part of a statement sent by them to News24 states, Quote, Even though some of the alleged incidents appear to go back 20 to 30 years, we nevertheless respect their privacy and ultimately they must themselves decide whether they wish to engage with you and respond to your report. As much as you are implying that the mission is responsible for every incident involving its congregation, we assure you that we strive to always act within the prescripts of the law. End quote. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button and rate and review us. It will go a long way into improving the podcast and helping others find it. You can find us on Facebook and you can email us at decodingcults at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. If there are any topics around the workings of cults which you would like further explanation on, or if there is a cult that you would like to hear about, email me or post it in the Facebook group. Remember to go and check out By Design Crafts SA and Endeavor AV and tell them that I sent you. This week, I want to say grazie mille to my listeners in Italy. The amazing logo art was created by the tattoo artist Jock Jacobs. Thank you so much for listening.